Well, welcome again, everyone. Uh, those of you who are uh, joining us online in person, thank you so much for being here. We are uh, in our third threshold, our fourth week um, through our current series. Before I unpack uh, where we've been, I just uh, want to maybe give an example of what this will look like a little bit. This threshold specifically, when it talks about being from close to change to being open to change. Now, um, quick uh, show of hands. You remember, you're in a safe place. Uh, everything's okay here. Um, how many of you have made a commitment at one point or another to start being healthier, either eating better or going to a gym? Wonderful. Again, safe place. I'm not going to ask the follow-up question. Uh, how many of you, a different follow-up, I should say. How many of you have gone to the point where you even uh, became part of a gym, got a gym membership at some point or another? Wonderful. Okay. How many of you, I will ask this one, how many of you started really strong with the gym and then you just started thinking, why are we still paying for a gym membership that we don't ever end up using? Anyone else? Oh, okay. Only a few people. That's, I'm glad I can raise my hand and feel like I'm in a safe place too. Um, <laughs> recognizing that there are times in my life that I've been like, oh, have you ever had this? We just like, I want to be the kind of person who you fill in the blank. Uh, for a while, you know, when I was early in my faith, I, like, I want to be the kind of person who wakes up at 6 a.m., the coffee's already brewing, and I have my time with the Lord. And I did that for quite a while, and then uh, we had these, um, uh, what's called, oh, kids, which makes that a little bit harder uh, to make that happen right early in the morning. Um, but then another thing is, like, I want to be the kind of person who goes to the gym. Because what that means is not just that you walk into a, a, a gym. It means that you are taking the time to prioritize health, then you're taking the time, you're changing some of your habits in order to hopefully produce some healthy results. And so a few years ago, um, I remember as the beginning of the school year, uh, I started getting, you know, you drive by a gym, like first, oh, you ask people, hey, what gym do you go to? And so I'm like, oh, some people that I knew here were like, oh, I go to choose in RB. I'm like, great, because that's cheap and I like it. And so um, we, then you start driving by like, oh, you know, I really should, like, I should do that. Like, I should go there uh, and sign up. And then there's the time where it was my first day, and like I have my duffel bag, um, and I uh, have my clothes for like I'm going to shower afterwards to come to the, the office here after dropping off um, our oldest at school. And so my whole morning now routine has changed a little bit to the point where, again, getting ready, getting things packed, going, and then just like ellipticizing for a while and watching, um, uh, watching like ESPN or Sports Talk, whatever's on there. And you walk in, though. And all of a sudden, it's like people are like waiting in line to get into a class. Some people are working out on their own here. There's strength training in the back. There's uh, cardio here. And you're all of a sudden you're like, oh, like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. And so I started being really consistent. I would go three days a week um, for, for quite a few months. And to the point where it was the beginning of the school year. And then like January came. And, you know, a lot more people who are saying, you know, I want to be the kind of people who go to a gym started coming for the New Year's resolution. And I have to confess, there are times when I'm just on the elliptical, like, rookies, I've been here for months, you know, like, and feeling like I was very, uh, like, very experienced now, which, not true. But this idea of, there's a difference when you get to that point of saying, okay, I'm going to start walking into a gym, I'm going to pay for it, I'm going to rearrange my morning habits, I'm going to go ahead and change the routine, because I'm open to the change that being healthier may come, or may result in, or may come about. Now, 
Full confession, again, there were times where that worked for several months, and then it got to a point where I, I stopped going, and we kept paying, and then we eventually stopped. So I'm not a paradigm of virtue here. I'm a fellow sojourner on the journey of health. But I bring it up because that's an example for me of getting to the point of being open to change, but maybe not taking the steps beyond that to um, really seek the best way to get healthy, the best steps, which our next threshold will be seeking, or the last one of entering into the kingdom of God, in this case, living a life fully devoted to health um, in a way. I got to phase three, or threshold three, which is what we're discussing today, and then it kind of tapered off. So as we unpack this morning, looking at the fact that there are five thresholds, and again, this is based off of the book I Once Was Lost by Don Everts and Doug Shop. I encourage this book, uh, interviewed thousands of specifically college students and young adults, but thousands of people who found faith in a postmodern world in which they were skeptics to being fully devoted followers of Jesus. And they listed not the same story, but similar thresholds along their journey. Threshold one, that they had to get to a point of just trusting a Christian. Threshold two, that they went from being indifferent to being curious. Threshold three, which we're discussing today, is being close to change to open to change. Number four next week will be from going from wandering to truly seeking. And then threshold five, entering into the kingdom of God, fully following God. So as we enter into our time today, starting with uh, going through threshold three, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Because this message, I believe, will hit some of us as people who are trying to reach out to people in this threshold. And I also believe that this message is going to hit some of us who are following Jesus, and we love him, but sometimes we're still reticent or hesitant to make the changes he's called us to make. And so I think there's something here for every group of people who are listening this morning, either in person, online, or listening at another time throughout the week. So with that said, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who hears my voice. Um, Lord, and I thank you that each person who hears my voice right now is someone who is deeply loved by you someone who has been created and formed, that you breathed your life into, God. Someone that Jesus died for, someone that the Holy Spirit wants to live inside and make more like Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to receive and to be open to the changes you have for us. I pray that we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18 this morning. Luke chapter 18. If you um, have some familiarity with uh, the Gospels, um, the first four books of the New Testament, uh, there's stories of Jesus' life. Luke 18 is a story that is in two of the other Gospels. It's the story of the rich young ruler. Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, in which Jesus responds to this man's question by challenging how open he really is to change. And so as we navigate this today, we're going to look at Luke 18, and we're just going to take a, a few moments to list out some things that are hard for us to change. And we include us. This is not just for people who don't know Jesus yet, that we all have a hard time changing in our lives. And yet through this story, through the scriptures, and through our time together, our hope is that we can unpack what some of those mean and how that impacts us when we fail to make these changes in our lives. The first one is that we have a hard time changing our understanding of how good is good enough. Our understanding of how good 
is good enough. That for some of us, it's, we, we grew up with the mindset of we just want to get the bare minimum grade to pass a class. Like what's good enough for me to still get a diploma or a degree? Others of us is how, what, how can I be good enough to make the team without necessarily having to put in the extra work uh, to, 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 to start or whatever? How good enough, can I, how much is good enough for me to get through with my job to maybe not be noticed for negative things and, and reprimanded, but, but, you know, I just kind of want to do the bare minimum. How good is good enough? And when it comes to our relationship with God, we need to unpack this because Jesus points out some very important things for us, um, specifically in this passage. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 18. We're going to read just verses 18 through 21 together as we begin. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. In verse 21, all these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Why do we start here? Because right at the very beginning... The man is approaching Jesus, someone that he trusts, someone that he's heard the teaching. Jesus has done miracles. His teachings have become well-known. And so this man is seeking wisdom from Jesus. And he goes with a, I mean, he comes with a respectful tone and says, you know, good teacher, a good rabbi, what, what must I do? And Jesus stops right there and first off addresses the fact that God alone is good, that our own goodness is not enough for us to bridge the gap between us and God. No amount of good deeds, no amount of, you know, we, we, we live in a culture where we inherently, everyone believes that humans are, are inherently good. Now, are we created in the image of a good God? Yes. But have we fallen short of that image and of his glory? Also, sadly, yes. That he loves us. We blew it. Jesus paid for it, and we must receive him. That, that's, the, that's the gospel in, in, in four uh, sentences. But what it means is that this man comes up, and he knows the right answers. He has an idea. and so, But Jesus, right off the bat, says, listen, however good you think you are, you're not good enough. Not valuable. Hear me, please. It's not that Jesus saying this man doesn't have value. Because when we hear good enough, we ascribe that to our value, thinking, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not capable enough, I'm not gifted enough. No, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not devaluing. In fact, the very fact that he came from the riches of heaven to the rags of a manger to live a perfect life, to die a horrible death, and then to be raised to new life, to invite us into eternal life with him, is evidence of the value he sees in us. So this is not a value statement, but this is an earning statement. Nothing we can do is good enough to earn our way into heaven. That is, by grace, by faith we have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so he starts off right at the back. Jesus says, You're, no one is good enough. Only God is good. But then he starts listing out. He says, you know the commandments. And then he lists out those five commandments. And the, and the man says, I've done all these things. In other words, not only do we have a false overestimation of our own goodness, we also place an overemphasis on our good works. Thinking that 
if I just do enough, if I go to church enough weeks out of the year, if I'm in enough Bible studies, if I have enough prayer times, if I serve enough on the weekends or in other capacities, if I do enough, if I check off the boxes, if I'm doing enough good things, then God must approve of me based on my own actions. But again, it's not on our works. It's on the work of Christ and the redeeming work on the cross, his life, death, and resurrection. And when we place our trust in him, that is where we find our identity. That's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our value. That's where we find our hope. And so we unpack this because we, it's hard for us to change the mindset, especially in a culture where we celebrate riches to ra- or rags to riches stories, and yet we follow a riches to rags God. From the riches of heaven to the rags of a manger, we celebrate and lift up people who come from rags and riches. Is that wrong? No. But it means that there's part of our culture, a part of our understanding, part of our worldview that needs to be adjusted. And one of those ways is thinking that what good enough is, none of our actions will be good enough on our own. Our actions that follow the Lord are fruit of the root of eternal life with God. The fruit of the Holy Spirit come when we trust Jesus, but that's because he's the one that we find our identity and not our own good works on our own. The second thing that we need to, that we see here is that it's hard for us to change our object of worship. It's hard for us to change our object of worship. Let's read the next few verses together and unpack what this means. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I need to unpack a couple things here. First, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but one that's worth noting is that whenever, maybe I don't want to make an assumption. For me, and I imagine for us, but for me, when I hear the idea of it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, I end up comparing myself to those I know who are richer than me. And so we start to put ourselves in like, well, you know, we're not as rich as um, actors or athletes or CEOs or whatever it may be. So, so we're still not the rich. It's, it's still easy for us. And yet, I, I need to speak truly and lovingly that compared to the world, everyone who hears my voice is rich. Because there are people who live on a couple dollars a day. That's what we spend on coffee in the morning. There are some who have to wait and they, they're unable to have jobs or they're unable to do this in countries across the world where they don't even have fresh drinking water and yet I have a bottle of water here and if I'm thirsty, I have more and I could refill it in a sink. All of us, instead of comparing ourselves to those we know who are richer and then trying to exclude ourselves from the rich, all of us, it would be beneficial for us to acknowledge that compared to much of the world, especially much of the world throughout all of time, we are rich. Therefore, let's heed the warning or let's heed the, the, the admonition here that it's hard. It's not impossible, which we'll see in a few moments in a few verses, but it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Some of the reasons why is because we trust in our own self-sufficiency. 
We think we don't need God if we can provide for ourselves. We find our security in our bank accounts, our 401ks, our investments, rather than our security in Jesus and the fact that no matter what happens financially, his love for us never changes, that our treasure is either here on earth or in heaven with him. And because we don't rely on everything around us or, or because we have the ability to work, we lose sight of the fact that God's the one who formed us with the skills, as Deuteronomy says, to be able to do the work that is what allows us to make money in the first place. So is that the main point of the sermon? No, but it helps us to clue ourselves in or, or, or link ourselves in with this uh, conversation Jesus is having, saying that this is for us just as much as it was for him. So let's go back to it. He says, what is the object of worship? Several years ago, we did a series here called It Starts Here, and it was a series about worship. We talked about the who, the what, the where, the why, the when, and the how. And in the who section of that sermon or that, that series, we had a saying that we, we started sharing throughout the service and the, uh, the rest of the series. Everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. Everyone worships something, but who or what we worship is everything. Because what the word worship is, the old English, is the idea of ascribing worth to something. So the rich young ruler here, he's ascribing worth to his finances, to his money, to his possessions. He's saying, I am unwilling, I am at the door, I am at the threshold of deciding if I'm open to change and allowing Jesus to change my life and then when he finds out that he has to walk through that threshold with all his possessions behind him to enter God's kingdom, he walks away sad. So let's revisit this. Does this mean that God is calling all of us to sell everything we have to the poor? He might be. If that's the idol that's holding us back. That he sees what it is that holds people back. So maybe for you, it's not finances. Maybe for you, it's performance and getting, um, uh, like getting raises. And it's not about the money for you. It's about the status. It's about being able to look, in, in my example, looking at the elliptical, be like, oh, I'm so much better than everyone here. And we wouldn't say it that way, but we might think it. Maybe for some of you, it's popularity and it's the idea of wanting approval from other people. If you ascribe worth to that, then that is a fickle, fickle friend to follow. Because every time you get it, that applause only lasts so long. Then you seek the applause more, greater, and more frequently for the rest of your life. And I speak from experience for that. Because Galatians 1.10 is one of the most convicting verses for me. Because it talks about, are you still trying to seek the approval of men? If so, you are not a disciple of Christ. Anyone else hit that? Does that hit you right square in the chest? Maybe that's not you, though. Maybe there's something else, your career, your, 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 whatever it is. What do you ascribe worth to? Because it's hard for us to change that. But until we get to the point where we can let that go in order to take hold of God, we're not crossing the threshold of being open to change. We'll be curious. We'll come to church. 
or watch sermons online. We'll be curious about the things of God, but until we're willing to walk through the threshold of change, then we're going to be stuck and not fully pursuing him. And if I may speak boldly and lovingly, there are many of us in this service, watching online, and the church in general, who we love Jesus, we follow him, but when a time of conviction comes, we cling to our idols rather than clinging to our Lord. We're unwilling to let go of that which we worship. We all worship something, but who we worship is everything. It means everything. It changes everything. So it's hard for us to change, and we're empathizing. It's hard for us to change our object of worship. If I might, if I might share a quick note in the text here, if you look at verses, um, when Jesus talks about the different laws, verses uh, 20, and t- uh, just 20, excuse me, he says, you know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Those five commandments are five of the ten, the ten commandments found in Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy 5. And here's what Jesus does. He knows this man. He knows him, and it says later he looks at him with love. This is not a mocking tone, but he looks at him. He knows him. He knows his struggles, and he lists the five commandments that he knows the man would be able to say, yes, I've done those. To unpack that, there are ten commandments. Four have to do with loving God can be summed up with loving God, and six can be summed up with loving your neighbor as yourself, loving others. So loving God and loving others fulfills the commandments, as Jesus talks about. They're the greatest commandments. There's six commandments that are loving others. Jesus mentions five. There's one that's missing. What's the one that's missing? When he talks to this rich young man who loves his possessions, you shall not covet. By not mentioning the one and by allowing the man to say, oh, yes, no, I've, I've followed all those commandments. By not mentioning the covetous one, he's pointing out to that which is holding him back. Because not only is he pointing out that covetousness is one that this man must struggle with because he knows that he wouldn't be able to confess that he's kept that since a boy, since he was a boy. Because covetousness holds him back, Jesus doesn't even touch on the first four about loving God and having no other idols before him. In other words, Jesus knows what this man ascribes worth to. He knows what he worships most. And if he knows that about that man then, you know he knows that about us now. It's hard. And yet as we're going to see in our third and final point, it's not just that, you know, it's hard for us to let go of our object of worship, but also, it's also hard for us to change the fear that we are incapable of change. Here's what Peter says as a response in verse 26. Um, Or rather, yeah, those, verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age 
and in the age to come, eternal life. See, there could be no more stark contrast between the rich young ruler and Peter's statements. The contrast of the rich young ruler saying, what must I do? What, I'm good enough. I've done good things. And, and what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to earn it? Well, leave everything. No, and walks away sad. Whereas Peter says, but we've left everything. We've left it all for you. And then Jesus promises and reveals that he'll receive eternal life and that he'll be blessed in that regard. So the contrast is there, but the fear then is, are we incapable of change? That we know, we've heard all the time, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results. A different pastor that I know um, said it this way, that if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Which grammatically poses some problems. (laughs) But in regards to wisdom, it's filled with good points. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. So when it comes to this idea for us that it is impossible for us to change, but we only need to look at Peter who had a business, had the ability to to be a fisherman with his brother and his friends. They had a fishing business, and and the day of their greatest catch, they left it behind to pursue their greatest pursuit, which was a relationship with Jesus. That we see it in Paul, who was once one who persecuted Christians when he was known as Saul, to the point where he was being persecuted for his faith in Christ. We see it time and time again. You see it in your own life when maybe you mocked God or you had had no desire for anything to do with him to now pursuing him wholeheartedly. Why? Because what's impossible with man, what seems impossible with man, is possible with God. Some of you sitting here are thinking, are likely thinking, yeah, but you don't know what, what I'm going through. And you're right, I don't. But I know a God who believes in doing the impossible for our sake. What seems impossible to us, he can make possible. So you can change. You may say, no, okay, I've changed, but the person I want to reach, my family member, a fellow student, a coworker, a neighbor, you don't know how far gone they are. You're right, I don't. But if an interaction with Jesus can turn Saul into Paul, There's hope for whoever it is that you're praying for. So it's possible, but how do we get there? See, I want to read from the book uh, here. It talks about, it has a quotation referring to the rich young ruler, and this is what it says. On the screen, it says, This guy, the rich young ruler, wants to hang out with Jesus and follow him around. He seems to have trusted Jesus, which is threshold one, and came to Jesus with, uh, with real questions and curiosity, which is threshold two. He was ready for anything. He says, come on, Jesus, give me your best shot. But when Jesus took it deeper to see if he was open to a real change in his life, in his case, rethinking his relationship to money by selling all possessions and giving everything to the poor, this trusting, curious young man walked away sad. Turns out he was not as open as he thought he was. In our own lives and in the lives of those whom we love, there are going to be times when change is at, we're at the threshold of it. Are we willing to walk in? 
And are we willing to share vulnerably with those around us what that journey's like so that they too can walk through that threshold as well? Is it likely that I could have been more consistent with going to the gym if I had someone that was going with me and showing me what to do and what not to do and how to best utilize that? Wouldn't have hurt. And yet, all of us are responsible for our own pursuit of how to let God change us and to let go of the wrong thing so we could take hold of a relationship with him, which is the right and the best thing for us. So we ask this question, how then, how then can we help people to be more open to relationship with God? How, how do we help navigate that? In the book, they give three examples. I'm going to go them, through them relatively quickly for the sake of time. There are three different stories of Jesus in the Gospel of John, but I'm going to give enough of a context so that we can take these points and, and apply them to those we love. Because again, this series is about wanting those we know and love to also know and love Jesus and walking with them patiently, lovingly, truthfully in that process. The first uh, example of what he does is what we talked about in the first week of this series, that Jesus touched the pain of the broken and the honest. This is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, and he saw her pain. She admitted that, you know, she fell short. She's like, no, you're right. The, the, um, you know, I, the husband, I, I'm not with the man. The man I'm with is not my husband. I've had five husbands. She's like, she honestly shared her pain, and she asked, where can I get this living water? Because I don't want to feel this pain anymore. And in that moment, Jesus was affirming to her. He was loving to her, but he still spoke truth to her. And because of that, she ran off and, as we'll see, shared her faith. But this is an example of being able to see someone who's in their pain, who's hurting and is struggling with wanting to have some change in their life, but they're in pain because of it. And Jesus touches them and lovingly affirms, but also speaks truth. An example of this might be you're having a conversation with someone who's going through a tough time, and you just say, listen, have you ever, sometimes I know in my life I try really hard and I try to make changes then I fall back and it's a lot of starts and stops and stutter steps and I struggle. I feel like I'm kind of a mixed bag even though I want to love Jesus. I know I'm not perfect with it and so I'm on this journey too. Have you, you, know, have you ever felt like a mixed bag? Have you ever felt like you've tried and started and stopped and stutter stepped? And by being vulnerable you open the door for communication not pretending that we have it all together, but in our vulnerability, sharing how, though we don't have it all together, God loves us, and we could be on that journey together. The second example comes from John chapter 5, just one chapter later, when he's mobilized the self-pitying and the fearful. In the book, it points out the story of John chapter 5, a man who was at was uh, crippled, and he was at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda was a place that there was a pool, and the local legend at the time had it that an angel would come down and would swirl the pools, and that when the pool would be swirled, and really it was just like, um, uh, like springs and stuff that would move it, but the legend was that would stir the pools, the first person who went into that pool would be healed. And so this is the legend, and so the man is sitting here at a mat for not one year, not five years, not 10 or 20 or 30, but 38 years. He's sitting on a mat wanting to be healed or close to being healed, and he's stuck. 
He can't walk. He can't go into the water. So for 38 years, he's stuck. He's too afraid, and he's pitying himself because it's, it looks like it's right there, and he can't reach it. When Jesus interacts with this man, he doesn't sit with him in his pain. Why? The man's been sitting in his pain for almost four decades. Longer than Jesus has even been alive, this man has been sitting here at the pool of Bethesda. And so Jesus approaches the man and he challenges him. He mobilizes him. He says, do you want to get well? Yeah. Get up. Take your mat and walk. He doesn't ask him to make a, a proclamation of faith. He doesn't walk through his testimony with him. He just says, get up. You can do this. Walk. This might be the example of sharing with someone, hey, there are times when I feel stuck in my life. I know what I want to do, but I don't do it. And the bad things I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. It's very Paul's in Romans 7. But you think, I feel stuck. Have you ever felt stuck? You know, I believe that if we pray together, even though you may not be on this place with Jesus yet, if we pray together every day for 10 minutes for the next week, I believe God will show us something. Maybe he will help us get unstuck. Would you be willing to do that? Coming from a place of vulnerability, walking through this journey with them. Thirdly, Jesus agitates, or agitated the complacent and the glib. And in, this, in the book, it talks about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It's Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus that when he talks about how, you know, how do I, what about eternal life? And he says, well, you must be born again. Everyone who's born again, he says, um, will have eternal life. This is where we see the famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But in the conversation, Nicodemus is coming from a theological perspective, and he's trying to talk on a theological term and says, well, then how can someone be born again? How can they give, be given birth again? What does that look like? And Jesus agitates him. You know, agitating, we, we, we think is an annoyance, but really it's, it's a it's a, it's a, it's a poking, it's a prodding, it's a shaking up of our, our perspective. And he says, are you, you're supposed to be Israel's teacher. You're, you're a Pharisee. You're, you're a very well-known teacher. You're coming to me at night because you don't want others to know you're pursuing. But it's this idea of saying, you're Israelite's teacher, yet do you still need to be taught? Again, he challenges him. We don't see the same exact loving and, and comfort that we see with John 4. We see him agitating and poking and prodding to expand this man's, um, his, his, his mindset or his concept of what good is and eternal life is. Here's why this is important. Because for us to be able to reach different people at different thresholds, we need to ask for the discernment of which way we are to interact with them. That if someone is in a place of great pain, and they're, they're sitting in their pain, and we just attack them theologically, chances are they're not going to pick up their mat and walk towards Jesus. They'll just walk away from a relationship with you and not trust you anymore. If we know someone who is, um, needs to be challenged, and we just keep trying to lovingly sit with them in their pain, but they just need someone to say, get up and walk. But if we are so stuck in a different phase... We're not going to have the right tools in order to do that. We need to walk alongside them. We need to ask Holy Spirit discernment to know where they are and what they need. If they need to be challenged, may we do so with love. If they need for someone to sit in their pain with them, may we do so while still speaking truth in the midst of that love. If they're someone who is just stuck, 
may we be patient enough to be there and then to challenge them and, and to mobilize them and to give them courage where they only feel fear. That when we encourage someone, it's literally we're putting courage into them. May we encourage those around us. So as we close, if we were to sum this all up, the idea for us in order to help people go from being closed to change to being open to change is for us to be vulnerable with them. To share where we are, to share the fact that we don't have this all figured out. I mean, we theologically know and we have a relationship with God, but we stumble and we get scraped knees and we get dirt on our face and we have issues with our journey with God too. And yet it's through those scraped knees and dirty faces and struggles that we can invite someone alongside and say, listen, I'm not a paradigm of virtue. I pursue God, I try, but I'm a fellow sojourner on this journey. Will you walk with me? I'll share my struggles, you share yours. Patiently, lovingly, truthfully, walking them through a place of being completely closed to being open to what God has for them. Because if they become open, friends, this is the hardest threshold to cross. And yet, if and when they do, they'll start seeking God and they will find him because you were willing to walk through this threshold with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are here with us today, wherever here is. Lord, we recognize that this is a threshold that is hard for all of us because we all struggle with what we ascribe worth to, what we worship. We all struggle at times with wanting to be good enough and thinking that our good deeds are enough to save us. We all have times in which we think we are too far gone or those we love are too far gone. And yet the reality is, Lord, is that what seems impossible for man is possible with you. May we leave this place, Lord, encouraged and emboldened to speak truth in love, patiently, lovingly, truthfully with those that we know and love most so that those we know and love most would know and love you too. So Jesus, thank you for meeting us here. Give us your courage, your discernment, Holy Spirit, and help us to be open to change in our own lives so that we can lead people in that journey, not out of perfection, but out of vulnerability so that they can trust us, but ultimately so that at the end of their journey of the thresholds, they would trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.